This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card this week is card number 304, George Hendrick, outfielder for the California Angels. And why are we talking about George today? Friend of the podcast, Hattori Hanzo, presumably not the 16th century ninja. I don't know if Hattori Hanzo had internet, but Hattori Hanzo sent a nice note and said that he spent the better part of August listening to every episode of the podcast. And he suggested that from his research, there were three players in the 1988 top set who were involved in a notorious game in Cleveland in the 1970s. The players were Alan Ashby, Jim Sundberg, and George Hendrick. Earlier this week, it was Hendrick's birthday, so I thought, why not George? And George Hendrick has a Sabre bio by Joe Wancho, who has written a ton of Sabre bios, including the Tom Glavin Sabre bio, which we discussed on the Tom Glavin episode with past guest Clayton Truder. And we will lean on Joe's work more in the future, as he has many Sabre bios for us to choose from. George Hendrick was a very good player with a complicated relationship with the press. And because of that, his public perception was much different than his reputation in the clubhouse or with fans. He was really interesting when I started to look into him, and uh, so I was excited to learn more about George. Fantastic. Well, let's get to it, and let's go to the front of card 304. And we have George in the batter's box. He's a right-handed batter. He is standing up tall at the plate, and he has his helmet on top of his hat. On the back of this card, it says George is 6'5". I also saw him listed at 6'3", but he's definitely taller than 6'5 with these multiple hats. He's got a hat on a hat here. <laughs> the helmet looks, it gets way up there. And he he has a good bit of hair poking out of the back too, which is a really good look. He's got a good mustache. It also just seems really far away. I don't know what it is just because he's so tall or maybe that the picture is slightly out of focus. It's kind of hard to tell, but I really had to zoom in on the Jumbotron to get a good look at George's face here. You also have the chain link fence behind him. So I'm kind of wondering what stadium or what park in in Southern California is he playing at? You can kind of see the people underneath the writing, but they're really high up. This is not a great place to watch a baseball game. It looks like they're very far away. There's also an empty folding chair back there, which is either getting ready to be used as a weapon in a wrestling match Mm. or as a prop by Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood's going to come out and make a speech, talk to an empty chair. Later on in the show, we will have a segment with RBI baseball correspondent Brian. He's also our pro wrestling correspondent, so it only makes sense that there would be a foreign object or other kind of uh, unauthorized weapon near the playing surface. This is a good display of George Hendrick's signature look, which is the very long pant. His pants Mm. show no socks. Later on, Barry Bonds, Manny Ramirez, and others, more a lot more players now do this, but George was one of the earliest to wear his pants all the way almost down to the shoe. There's no stirrup showing. It's a strange look on these cards. I don't think that we've had anybody else with the long pant look. Definitely. And now let's go to the back of 304. And this is a familiar look to us. 
That is tiny, tiny print as we talk about a player who is at the end of a very long career. We've got 17 years of baseball on this card to discuss, and we start with height 6'5 and weight 195, right-handed batter and thrower, drafted by the A's in the first round of 1968, born October 18th, 1949. Happy birthday, George. Born in Los Angeles, California, with a home in Brea, California. George went to Fremont High School in South Central L.A. Baseball names associated with that school, Eric Davis, Hall of Famer Bobby Doerr, Gene Mock, Chet Lemon, also famous NWA doctor Andre Young, better known as Dr. Dre, and also Don Cherry, not the uh, dingus hockey announcer, but the outstanding jazz trumpeter. Don Cherry played with Ornette Coleman for years, including on The Shape of Jazz to Come, one of the masterpieces of free jazz. He was a lead or co-lead on many recordings, including with John Coltrane on Avant Garde and many of his own band's recordings like Mew and Symphony for Improvisers. George grew up in the Watts neighborhood of Los Angeles, and due to racially restrictive covenants, black Los Angelinos were forced to live in certain sections of the city, and Watts was one of those segregated areas. By the 1960s, when George was in high school, Watts was a powder keg due to years of LAPD mistreatment of the black community, and in the, and the 1964 passage of Proposition 14, which legally allowed landlords to discriminate based on race and ethnicity. And in 1965, a young black man, Marquette Fry, was pulled over on suspicion of drunk driving. His mother is brought to the scene. Unclear what exactly ensued here. Marquette Fry ends up getting hit in the head with a baton. His mother jumps on a police officer. Guns are drawn. A crowd forms. And a riot ensues. Rumors spread about the incident. And over the next few days, a 46-square-mile area of L.A. was a battle zone with a military response to the rioting. There were shootouts, looting, rioting, and in the end, 34 people died and 3,500 people were arrested over six days of rioting. And so this is the context of George's childhood and high school years in South Central Los Angeles. He went to Fremont High School, but he didn't actually play sports there. When he was asked later why, he said, I just didn't. In a Sports Illustrated article, it said that he had had a run-in with the JV coach as a freshman, but there weren't really any details about what happened there. He just didn't play organized sports in high school. He played baseball in the neighborhood and also played basketball, just not for the school. But somehow, as you read on the card earlier, he was drafted by the A's in January with the number one pick. He played amateur ball for a team called the Pirate Rookies. And he was good enough that he actually drew pro scouts to this amateur game. Whitey Herzog, who was a scout for the Mets and later George's manager with the Cardinals, saw him play. And he said he was in front of Major League scouts and George wasn't even in a uniform. He had on a pair of Levi's and a white t-shirt. George was playing center field and there was no fence. Instead of coming in with his teammates in between innings, If he wasn't due at bat, he would just wander out and lay in the grass in deep center field or out on the foul line and take a nap. Herzog said, who knows what the hell was going on in his head. So George was an interesting individual as a young person. Didn't want to play for the high school team, but clearly had some talent. Herzog was a scout for the Mets who had the number two pick in the draft. And he said, if Oakland hadn't picked him, we would have gotten him in a minute. 
But the A's did have the number one overall pick in the 1968 draft. Bob Zook was their scout. He was the son of Russian immigrants. He grew up in Detroit speaking only Russian, so maybe it was Bob Zook. He was a pitcher who was in the minors for one month and had a career-ending rotator cuff injury. He went to Cal Berkeley and worked with the city of Oakland to run the city's baseball program, and then went into scouting and became one of the most respected scouts in Major League Baseball. He first covered California for the Pirates. He was credited with signing Willie Stargell, later was hired by the A's and signed Reggie Jackson, George Hendrick, Daryl Evans, and then left the A's for the Expos and signed Gary Carter. So a pretty good run for him. I was looking at this and thinking, how in the world do you pick a guy who never played high school baseball with the number one pick in the draft? And it was the January phase of the draft, so it's not the full every high school student coming out. So this is more the guys who got skipped over in that first draft. But there were still some good players in this draft. George Foster was also picked in this draft, who later went on to win an MVP. Zook was able to convince the A's that they should use the number one pick on George Hendrick. The A's made that choice, but then Zook had two other problems. First, he had to persuade Hendrick, who was about to go to junior college, that he should sign with the A's. And then he had to keep the A's owner, Charlie Finley, from calling George's mom because he kept calling and kept offending her. Oh, no. So luckily for the A's, $20,000 was all it took here and a $4,000 Pontiac and the promise to bring his mother to Oakland for the 1968 opening day. Do we have any read on what kind of Pontiac it was? I did look at the 1968 Pontiac catalog. You know, it's just a thing that Sometimes you just find yourself looking at a 1968 Pontiac catalog. The original MSRP on a Firebird was $2,800. So they said they spent $4,000. A Bonneville was $3,800. So that's you know more of a big-bodied car. So George Hobson, maybe his Pontiac Bonneville, and drove to Burlington, Iowa. For his first season, he leads the league in hitting with a three twenty seven average. The next year, he was at Lodi, still in A ball, hitting three oh seven. And the A's really liked what they saw. 1970, he was split between A and AA ball. He hit 297 with 18 homers and earned a spot at AAA Iowa in 1971, where he was outstanding. He hit 333 with 21 home runs. And I thought this was a full season, but it was only 63 games. 21 homers in 63 games. Pretty good. He was called up, made his debut on June 4th, 1971 against Washington. He comes in in the 11th inning, and he went one for six because this was a 21-inning game. So he got his first hit. A couple days later, he got a hit as a pinch hitter and then was sent back to AAA. He was recalled in mid-July and closed out the year with the A's. He hit 237 in 42 games. Spent a little bit of time back at AAA in 1972, but for most of the season with the 93-win A's, he was a reserve outfielder behind Reggie Jackson, Joe Rudy, and Angel Manguel. Before I get into any more of the 1972 season, David, I do need to pause and, and note that this is our first mention of the Washington Senators on this show. In 1972, he only hit 182, but he did make the playoff roster. 
in the ALCS against the Tigers, he was used as a pinch hitter in the first four games and went one for four. The series was tied after four games. In the second inning of game five, Reggie Jackson slid into home to tie the game 1-1. In the process, he injured his hamstring and George came in in his relief. Hedrick would end up scoring the go-ahead run to win game five and go to the World Series against the Big Red Machine. He ended up starting the first five World Series games in center field, but he only went two for 15. The A's won the series in seven games, and six of those were decided by a single run. So in George's first full season in the majors, he ends up in the World Series, plays significant playing time, doesn't have a great series, but wins a World Series ring. And around this time, he was criticized for sometimes lackadaisical play in the outfield. Yankees coach Elston Howard said, he's a real dog. You could see that the way he played against us. Half trying. What a shame. And throughout his career, George was consistently below average defensively, if you look at baseball references, defensive war. Prior to the 1973 season, the A's were thinking of sending George back down to AAA. Oakland picked up another center fielder, so George was farther down the team sheet. And on March 24th, George and catcher Dave Duncan were traded to Cleveland for catcher Ray Fossey and infielder Jack Heidman. So this trade started out pretty great for Cleveland. George was penciled in right away as the starting center fielder. He hit 279 with 21 home runs in 113 games. So that's a big jump up from four the year before. And he was second on the team in home runs, despite missing the last six weeks of the season with a broken wrist. In his first season in Cleveland, he was still talking to the press. But that would change for reasons that aren't exactly clear. He felt like his older teammates resented him for talking too much after games. Maybe he was getting more press than some of his older teammates. Some of the veterans on the team just, they didn't appreciate it. So then he said he wouldn't talk at all in the post game. Some members of the press didn't like this change and they criticized George. So he said, fine, I won't talk at all. He later would say, if I have something to say, I'll say it, but it's hard for me to talk to reporters. I don't know who I can trust and whom I can't trust. And I don't want to spend the time and energy to distinguish between the two. My policy has been to let you write what you're going to write. I won't be rude. If I don't have anything to say, I'll say no comment. And so for this stance, he became known as Silent George. Which seems justified on his part because he was getting negative comments from other managers and it can be very frustrating to have quotes taken out of context or feel like, you know, the story is not in your control. And yeah, people should get over it. Uh, But meanwhile, at the plate, there was really little for anyone to complain about. In 1974, he hit 279 with 19 home runs and made his first All-Star game. But then criticism starts up again. In the field, George sometimes jogged for the ball. According to broadcaster (laughs) Joe Tate, in the ninth inning of a game against the Yankees, George didn't go all out for a ball that went over his head. The ball dropped, run scored, and Cleveland lost. And their Hall of Fame pitcher, Gaylord Perry, lost the game. Afterwards, Perry confronted Hendrick and the in the locker room and announced, I never want this SOB in center field when I pitch again. For his play in the field, he was sometimes called Jogging George or Captain Easy. Oh man, this is a lot of nicknames very early in his career. We've had some players, David, that never seemed to get a nickname at all, which was 
sometimes kind of frustrating because we run out of things to call them. But he's got three or four already, and he's at, at like age 25. Yeah, Silent George stuck with him throughout his career. He stuck with, for the most part, his stance of not talking to the press. Later in that year, another incident took place, which is, I guess, the inciting incident for this podcast. June 4th, 1974, random Tuesday game at Municipal Stadium. If you look at the attendances for Monday and Tuesday games, they were drawing 1,500 people, 2,000, 3,000 fans. But this Tuesday, there was a promotion that drew 25,000 people, and that is 10-cent beer night. Oh, my gosh. The normal price was 65 cents. These poor souls who came to the stadium were limited to six beers at a time, (laughs) but no limit on the number of visits. Oh, yeah. This is going to go great. It was also 50 (laughs) cents for a ticket. So for $1, you could get a seat in the bleachers and five beers. Here's Cleveland and Texas. Texas, the former Washington Senators. There's bad blood between these teams. They had played a week prior and had benches-clearing incidents where Rangers fans were throwing beer and food onto the field at Cleveland players. And a reporter asked Billy Martin after the game, are you going to take your armor to Cleveland? And Martin replied, no, they won't have enough fans there to worry about. So the fans were mad and ready to get liquored up and angry. The vendors couldn't serve beer fast enough. At one stand, there were two girls who were staffing the beer tent One was collecting money, one was pouring the beer, and they couldn't keep up. So they just gave up and just left the tent (laughs) and said, have at it. The the beer trucks were just pulled up to the fence in the outfield, and you could go up and just fill your cup straight from the truck. And then the Rangers take a 5-1 lead. Throughout the game, there's flashers running onto the field. A woman flashed the crowd and then tries to kiss the umpire, Nestor Shalak. A father-son duo come out and moon the crowd. Another totally naked man wearing one sock slides into second base, which is not advisable. (laughs) Going to get dirt in the places unknown. By late in the game, there's also fireworks going off. People are dropping cherry bombs into the Rangers' dugout. Someone threw an empty jug of Thunderbird at future Cleveland manager Mike Hargrove. George Hendrick was in center field and went two for four with a run and an RBI, so he had a decent game. Cleveland comes back to tie the game 5-5 to in the bottom of the ninth. With two outs, a fan runs onto the field and tries to steal outfielder Jeff Burroughs' hat. Burroughs trips, and his teammates think that he's getting attacked, so they all come running out of the dugout with bats to fight against the fans who have stormed the field. Throughout the game, there's just people running back and forth in all directions across the field, totally out of control. There's hundreds of fans now with knives, chairs, bottles surrounding the players who have bats. At this point, the Cleveland players come out to the defense of their opponents. And that really was what protected the Rangers. They said they might not have gotten off the field if not for the Cleveland players coming out and coming to their defense. The umpire himself got hit in the head with a piece of a seat. The game ends up called. A forfeit is awarded to the Rangers. So this shows up on baseball reference as a 5-5, but a victory to the visiting team because of the forfeit. 
it took the Cleveland police coming in with riot gear, tear gas to clear the stadium. They arrested nine people and that's the last 10 cent beer night, right? Oh no. They figured let's try it again. A few weeks later, July 18th, there were 41,000 fans that time up from 25,000 before, but they limited them to only two 10 cent beers and brought a lot more security, no riots, but probably collected more money for the beer because they actually collected the money for the beer. So that was so there are two more guys who we're going to get to who played in that 1974 game. Later that season, George ends up injuring his hamstring. He ends up missing some playing time. Manager Ken Aspermonte said that he wouldn't play George unless George comes to him and says, I'm 100%. And Hendrick says, I wanted to play, but I wasn't going to talk to the man. I am not going to talk to him. I don't have anything to say to him. It's no secret. I don't care for the man, but I don't want to get into the reasons. One of the reasons later divulged for George and Aspermonte's disagreement was that earlier in the season, Aspermonte wouldn't give guys time off. And he said, I'm not taking any excuses. I don't care if your mother is on her deathbed. And Hendrick's mother had mm. died the previous season. And he viewed this comment as a personal affront and said afterwards, I can't play for that man. So he didn't really go all out for Aspermonte, but he was still good enough for another all-star appearance. Cleveland was under 500, and George didn't really have to worry about Aspermonte anymore because he got fired. Frank Robinson was brought in in late 1974 to play, and then in 1975, he was going to be Cleveland's player manager, George had played under Robinson in the Puerto Rican League one winter and said, my ambition is to play for Frank Robinson. Well, congratulations. Robinson said all he asked was that George give him 100%. And he got another all-star season out of George Hendrick, 258 average, 24 home runs. The team finished right around 500. 1976, another good, solid year for George, 265, 25 home runs, which was good for fourth in the American League. Also 81 RBIs and 11 steals. George is 26 years old and in his prime, but Cleveland was open to trade their sometimes difficult slugger at this point. In the winter meetings, they were talking with San Diego, and they ended up making a deal, sending George West in exchange for Johnny Grubb, father of Jason Kendall, Fred Kendall, and Hector Torres. Padres GM Buzzy Bavese said, when we made the deal, Cleveland writers said we'd made a mistake, that Hendrick was a problem player, but I found out that that wasn't true. And George went on to be the best player on the Padres in 1977, taking his game up a notch, hitting 311, 23 homers, 81 RBIs. He had a 145 OPS plus. He was sixth in the National League in wins above replacement among position players at 5.8. This was the best season of George's career. Unfortunately, it was for a team that lost 93 games. 1978, George starts out slow. He was frustrated that Roger Craig was moving him around between center field and left field. And George was also attempting to renegotiate his contract, which had him in San Diego until 1979 at $500,000 a year. He was shopped around, and after his agent met with the Cardinals to discuss his future, an arrangement was reached. And on May 26, the Padres sent George to St. Louis for pitcher Eric Rasmussen. After the trade, George gave an interview, surprisingly. Don't see many of those. 
He said, when I played against the Cardinals, my observation was that if they had someone in the lineup who could protect Ted Simmons and hit 20 home runs and drive in 80 or 90 runs, I thought they could contend. I'm not saying I'm that guy, but I'm going to try to be. And this kind of shows the quotes that George would provide. When he talked to people, he said thoughtful and intelligent things, but it was on his terms. He liked to be in a position where if he wanted to talk, he would say, I think this is an important thing that people need to hear from me. So he asked to give that interview, gave the interview, says intelligent things, and then goes out on the field and proves it. He hit 288 with 17 home runs and 67 RBIs in 102 games. The team was better with him. He basically prorated, got that 20 homers and 80 RBIs. He did exactly what he thought the team needed to do. In his first six years as a Cardinal, he averaged 19 homers and 85 RBIs, exactly what he said the team needed out of him. In 79, he's back hitting 300. The Cardinals with Ted Simmons, Keith Hernandez, Lou Brock, and George are over 500. 1980, he returns to the All-Star game with a fantastic season at the plate, 302, 25 home runs, and a career-high 109 RBIs winning a Silver Slugger Award, and finishing eighth in the National League MVP voting. Halfway through 1980, Whitey Herzog took over as manager, and he got along well with George, remembered scouting him for the Mets. Herzog said Hendrick was the best right fielder in the National League, and his teammates said he never missed a cutoff man. And Herzog said when he took over, George loafed down the line once. We had a little talk. About six weeks later, he loafed again. We had a little longer talk. I have not had one bit of trouble with him since. And so you can see, like, some guys figured out a way to get a relationship with George and help motivate him, and and some clearly didn't. But things were working. 1981, George had a very good year, finished 14th in the MVP voting. A typical season for him, 284, 18 home runs. But that was only in 101 games because of the strike. Again, this is the the weird 1981 season where the Cardinals had the best record in the National League East by winning percentage, but they didn't win either half of the season, so they didn't make the playoffs that year. 1982 looks very similar, but with 136 games that he played, he had 282 and 19 home runs. It's important to keep in mind that he's playing at Bush Stadium, not a great place for power hitters. As a team, this Cardinals team only hit 67 home runs. He accounted for 28% of the team's homers. There were only two guys with more than 10 home runs. He also added five triples, drove in 104, his second career 100 RBI season. And he also led the league with 14 sacrifice flies. So he's just doing a lot of things to get himself in Whitey Herzog's good graces. The Cardinals win the National League East that year by three games over the Phillies. Down the stretch in September, George hit 326 with an 881 OPS. He was also a great clutch hitter throughout the season. With two outs and runners in scoring position, he hit 318. And here he is back in the playoffs for the first time since 1972 and did much better this time around in the playoffs. Hit 308 with two RBIs in a three game sweep of Atlanta. And in the World Series, he hit 321 with five RBIs. The Brewers were up three games to two. So the Cardinals' backs were against the wall in games six and seven. Hendrick went two for five with an RBI in each game. The Cards won game six, 13 to one. And in the decisive game seven at Bush Stadium, in the fourth inning of game seven, Robin Yount was on first base. 
one out in a scoreless game. Maybe who throw this hard in the American League. Base hit to right field. Yance going to third. Hendricks throw. He got him. Just an outstanding play by George Hendricks. Underrated. Unspoken. Charges the ball. Almost grabbed it by four seams. Ozzie Smith with the decoy. I'm surprised they didn't argue a little bit more. I don't know if the third baseman Oberfeld blocked him off. He just crushed him right in the side of the head with his right knee. Kept him off the bag. He, like, absolutely need Robin Yount right in the head. Yeah. So George Hendrick in this, he does look nonchalant in his approach of the ball as the ball comes to him. He doesn't really sprint to the ball, but he gets to the single in stride. The throw is to the left of third base. Robin Yount is coming sliding headfirst into Ken Obergfell. Obergfell knees him directly in the head, maybe doesn't even tag him. He blocks the base. Robin Yount didn't really protest. He just kind of got up, dusted himself off, and walked to the dugout. But this would be definitely a replayable play nowadays. But George Hendrick gets the out at third base. The next batter pops out. They get out of the inning with without giving up a run. In the sixth inning, the Brewers take the lead 3-1. And in the bottom of the inning, with one out and the bases loaded, Keith Hernandez singles to tie the game 3-3. And George steps up with runners on first and third. That hit to right field drove in the go-ahead run, and after the last out of Game 7, George exited under the right field stands and didn't go to the clubhouse, so he didn't celebrate with the rest of the team. The next day, his friend Bob Forsch called him and asked him where he went, and George said, I just wanted you guys to enjoy it. I was listening to the celebration in my car while I was driving home. This is the Cardinals' home run leader, RBI leader, their cleanup hitter, and he had just won his second World Series, playing a really significant role after being benched for the last two games the first time around. And he would rather drive home than party with the rest of the team. Just a, a quiet and understated guy, George Hendrick. 1983 was the last year of George's peak. In spring 1983, he started learning how to play first base, learning from his mentor, Keith Hernandez. He thought that maybe he would be traded at some point as he got up in age, so he wanted to learn how to play first base from the best. Then in June, the Cardinals did decide to make a trade, but they traded away Hernandez instead. Whitey Herzog said that Keith Hernandez was a cancer to the team. And he thought that George was, quote, a hell of a guy. And Georgia picked up first base, played well enough. They didn't get much in return for Keith Hernandez. Hernandez would go on to, of course, lead the Mets to the World Series. The Cardinals would get Neil Allen in return, revisit the Neil Allen episode to see how that one turned out. George played 90-plus games at first base, made his final All-Star appearance, he hit 318 with 18 homers and 97 RBIs. He won the first base Silver Slugger Award and just had a really good season. I also found this interesting Sports Illustrated article that talked to a family from Collinsville, Illinois, in the Metro East, just across the river from St. Louis. 
This is the the Hone family with their four kids. They went to Cardinal Spring Training. Their oldest child, 13-year-old Carol, becomes friends with George. The family invites George to go out to dinner with him. He says, okay, and brings Tito Landrum along. And they learned about George the person. He liked to watch All My Children. He loved the Lakers and was friends with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Magic Johnson. He was generous with fans, particularly children. He would invite them into the clubhouse pregame and show all the kids around the, the Cardinals clubhouse. He would give them hats. And he was really friendly to fans and teammates. And even his opponents liked him. It was just this really different piece in 1983 that really focused on George. And there's really there's very few articles about him that talked to him because of his refusal to talk to the press. But this one had a really nice human interest story about this family that just somehow became friends with George Hendrick, this guy who's often portrayed as kind of surly or mean because he refuses to talk to reporters. In 1984, his power fell off. He still hit 277, but he only had nine home runs. He's 35 at the end of this season, and the Cardinals needed pitching, so in December, they decided to make a move. They sent Hendrick and utility man Steve Bernard to Pittsburgh for left-handed pitcher John Tudor and catcher Brian Harper. This is a trade that turned out pretty good for the Cardinals. The John Tudor episode, you'll find out more, but he did pretty well there. George, on the other hand, didn't do so well at Pittsburgh. He hit only 230 through 69 games. And really, this should be the this way to the clubhouse that on August 2nd, 1985, he was sent to the California Angels with pitcher John Candelaria in a five-player deal. But there's no room at the bottom of this card for this way to the clubhouse. So you'll just have to fill in the rest. Yeah, they got to fit in that game-winning RBIs down there. George ends up in California, mostly playing part-time, getting up there in age at this point. 1986 was his most productive year with the Angels, playing 102 games, hitting 272 with 14 home runs, mostly playing right field. The Angels won their division, played the Red Sox in the ALCS, but George only went one for 12 in three games. And that playoff appearance, while ultimately disappointing for the Angels, did earn the Angels, and George, a spot in RBI baseball. And that means it's time to visit the RBI corner with Brian. And we are back in the RBI corner. Welcome back, Brian. And we're here to talk about the California Angels again with George Hendrick. Great to be here. So the California Angels in RBI Baseball, we talked about them in the Brian Downing and the Don Sutton episodes. We talked about how I don't like their gaudy cobalt blue and magenta uniforms, but the team itself is very good. They're one of the top three regular teams, along with Boston and Detroit. There is great power up and down the lineup with an absolute superstar, Reggie Jackson. Just for a sense of context... They have 10 players, 10 players. There's only 12 position players total in RBI baseball. You have your eight starters and your four bench players. 10 who would have the second most power on the Astros or the third most power on the Cardinals. So you have power up and down the lineup and on the bench as well. They also have good balance. They start three lefties in the lineup and five righties. And they have two good lefties off the bench. One of them is RBI baseball 
cult hero Rupert Jones, who I hope we get to talk about at some point. The starting pitching has unusual endurance. It's more finesse than velocity. But as I've mentioned in some other episodes, finesse usually plays better than velocity. So the Angels are a really tough team, and you can definitely win with them. Brian, you are not the first person to suggest Rupert Jones. Unfortunately, Rupert Jones does not have a 1988 Topps baseball card. Inexplicably. That is tragic. I'm looking forward to the new 1988 Donruss podcast at the conclusion of this one in about 10 years. (laughs) Well, how about George Hendrick, the player? So whenever I see George Hendrick, I think of him as a mashup of George Harrison and Jimi Hendrix. I suppose that's not fair, but it, it feels like one of those random, you know, player name generators for a franchise mode game where they take the first name of somebody and the last name of somebody, and then hence you have a new player. That, of course, is not giving George Hendrick enough credit because he's actually a pretty good player. I'm also not aware of him having any unique musical skills, um, <laughs> but he's one of four bench players on the Angels. And as I mentioned, it's a really great bench. In terms of qualities, George Hendrick has a lot of power. He's one of those 10 guys who are more powerful than almost anyone in the Astros or Cardinals. For the sense of context, players with comparable power in RBI baseball include Matt Noakes, Bill Madlock, Kevin Mitchell, Keith Hernandez, Don Mattingly, Pedro Guerrero. So that gives you some sense of the company that George Hendrick keeps. Doesn't have a lot of speed, though, and he is a righty. So you're really just looking for that power, and you're not probably going to beat out a grounder to shortstop if you pull the ball, because he's probably not fast enough to beat it out. So do you sub him in, and if so, where? So you can sub him in, and you probably should sub him in. Um, You always need to get Rupert Jones in the lineup, and I think a lot of people like to put Jones in the number one spot for Gary Pettis, but you could keep Pettis in if you wanted to. After that, it's really up to you. Hendrick is probably the second best bat off the bench, but it might be a matchup issue. So you might want two lefty subs, for instance, against a righty pitcher, in which case you might bring in Rob Wilfong instead of Hendrick. But against a lefty pitcher, you need to put George Hendrick into the game. Um, You could definitely sub him in for Bob Boone. There's other spots in the lineup as well. But try to get George Hendrick in the lineup if you are playing with the California Angels. Just an amazing segment to discover the fifth Beatle, George Hendrick. So thank you very much for that, Brian. Thank you, and I'm sure he's very proud of that legacy. And we're back. 1987 and 1988, George hit in the 240s in limited usage and then called it a career at that point. So closing the book on George Hendrick, 18 seasons in the major leagues, a 278 average, OPS plus of 117, 1,980 hits, 267 home runs, and RBIs totaling 11-11. Hug a cat. Four all-star appearances, two Silver Slugger awards, two World Series rings. How about in retirement? Didn't find a lot about George's family and what his family life was like in retirement, but I did find that his son Brian played center for the Cal basketball team and was really good for the Cal basketball team and then later played professionally overseas. George went into coaching. He was a minor league hitting coach in the Cardinals system. For one year, he was the Cardinals big league hitting coach, spent some time in the Dodgers and Angels organizations as a coach, and became friends with Joe Madden and joined Madden as the first base coach for Tampa Bay and served in that role from 2006 to 2014 and then later served as a special advisor for baseball operations with the team. In the course of his time in Tampa Bay, there were a few videos of highlights of his coaching, a couple where 
a line drive would be hit at the first base coach and he would have to use his cat-like reflexes to get out of the way. And then one where he did something that that current baseball player or that current professional player, Will Myers, said was the most incredible thing he has ever seen. There's a, a two-minute long video here about George Hendrick dropping a water bottle. Yeah, this is just someone holding an empty Aquafina bottle out straight, like at arm's length, just away from your body, dropping it and it bouncing a couple times and landing upside down on the mouth of the bottle. And these two major league players are just, they're mesmerized. And apparently the entire team was mesmerized by this act that now on TikTok, you can watch people doing 50 ways. I just wouldn't be impressed anymore. So I don't, I don't know. 2014 was a different time, Matt. This is yeah. a pre-TikTok world. They didn't certainly have was. the kind of entertainment options that we have today. And so they put tape around and said, do not touch this bottle that was just standing. So George Hendrick mesmerizing the young players, teaching them the ways. So George with a long and accomplished career in the major leagues, did he get any Hall of Fame votes? Not a single one. And it's probably warranted. But it is interesting to look at George's peak and compare him to some other players. From 1973 to 1983, George was the 10th best outfielder in terms of offensive wins above replacement, right behind Pete Rose, ahead of George Foster, Dave Parker, Greg Luzinski. But he was often a below-average defensive outfielder. So when you add in his defensive wins above replacement, overall he drops to 19th over that stretch. So still a very good outfielder. His Hall of Stats rating was 48, so not quite worthy of a Hall of Fame argument here, but he was a very good player. During that peak, he had the 12th most home runs in baseball, 228, 17th most hits, 12th most RBIs, never quite got to that next level of superstardom, but was a very good player, particularly during that seven years with the Cardinals, where he really made a mark on the team. He was fourth on a list of the Cardinals' all-time best right fielders and was number 62 on a Belleville News Democrat list of the Cardinals' 100 best players of all time. Yeah, stats-wise, there's not a big argument. But he was certainly memorable seeing how he worked in the outfield. His body language and how he carried himself was just as unique. His batting stance as well, along with that look, the long pants that covered up his socks, and then his notable silence with the press was something that people remembered him for. But because he didn't talk to the press, it was assumed that he was mean or surly. But that wasn't the way that his teammates or opposing players saw him or even opposing coaches. Jim Fry, who in the early 80s was the Mets' first base coach, said, For 10 years, I'd heard these stories about him, how he didn't talk to the press, but I'm a friendly guy, so I asked him, George, how do you like first base? Now I'm expecting him to say something like, what the hell does it matter to you? Well, instead, out comes this soft voice. He sounded like a nun, and he says, well, Jim, my teammates have been so helpful, they've made the transition easy. So Jim Fry says, George is something other than what people said he was. Ozzie Smith was Hendrick's closest friend on the team when he was on the Cardinals and said, he's an unselfish person, a happy person. The biggest joke is when they call him Silent George. He stirs up more fun in the clubhouse. 
But perhaps an incident that says the most about George Hendrick as a person and his personality was his treatment of reporter Lisa Saxon. Lisa Saxon was one of the first full-time female sports reporters covering baseball, and she was assigned to the Angels from 1983 to 1987. And during that time, she faced a lot of abuse when she would go in the clubhouse, yelling, spitting, indecent exposure that largely went under the radar as sexual harassment was not as front and center in the American consciousness as it is now. Gene Mock banned her from his office. She was barred from some locker rooms. She basically powered through it, through oftentimes intense emotions, because she knew that she was opening doors for future reporters. Some baseball people were helpful along the way. She specifically pointed to Tommy John and Don Sutton, who spoke up for her. But then there was Reggie Jackson. Reggie Jackson would scream and curse at Lisa, criticize her clothes and her looks. He told her he wished she was dead. And she then put some of this in an article that ran in the LA Times in 1986. Reggie read the article. It did not paint him in a good light. And he was nearing the end of his career and looking at a a possible Hall of Fame vote. He's telling his teammates how unhappy he is. When Lisa gets to her hotel, there's a message from George Hendrick saying, call me. He and John Candelaria, who had been traded from the Pirates to the Angels together, shared a room and they said, Reggie's on the warpath and he's out to get you. So come down to our room, visit us. Lisa reluctantly agreed. She didn't ever like to visit players' rooms. She felt that that was, could be seen as unprofessional, particularly for a female reporter at the time. She reluctantly agrees to go down, and Hendrick says, Lisa, from here on in, you're not fighting alone. To get to you, Reggie's going to have to come through us. We're tired of watching it. So the next day, Lisa goes to the clubhouse, and Reggie's screaming at her as she walks in. And as promised, George and John Candelaria, who's six foot seven, step in front of her and tell Reggie, you're going to have to go through us to get to her. I think it really, even though George had this reputation with reporters that he didn't want to talk to them, it wasn't that it was an antagonistic relationship. He just didn't want to make a comment. It must be a difficult situation to be in when your job is scrutinized and you decide that you don't want to be misrepresented, so you just decide not to talk. George didn't particularly complain about what people wrote about him, but he also didn't tell his own story. And so stories like this that only come out because of something terrible that happened to a reporter like Lisa Saxon help to tell the story of what George Hendrick was like as a person and as a man and as a player. And he was a really good player and a very good person. He was liked by most of his teammates, maybe not Gaylord Perry, most of his managers, maybe not Ken Aspermonte, and at least a few reporters and at least one family in Collinsville who had a really great experience with George Hendrick. Well, it's good to get the rest of that story, even if he didn't speak to that story as much when he was a player. I'm glad that we could get it now. So thank you, David, for that. And thank you to Joe Wancho, who wrote the Sabre bio that helps so much with this. And thank you to you at home. If you've ever been part of a father-son moon expedition, we'd love to see the pictures on Twitter. We're at Tops1988. Thanks a lot. and We'll see you next week.